the question mark. Poor thing, poor crippled measure of punctuation. Who would know, who could imagine you used to be an exclamation point? What force bet you over? Age, time, and the vices of this century? Did you not once evoke, call out, and stress? But you got weary of it all, got wise, and turned like this. As at the far edge of circling, as at the far edge of circling the country, facing suddenly the other ocean, the boundless edge of what I had wanted to know, I stepped into my answer's shallow, shadow ocean, the tightening curl of the corners of outdated old paperbacks, breakers, a crumble surf of tiny dry triangles around my ankles sinking in my stand, taken that the horizon written by the spin of my compass is that this is, is not enough, a point to turn around on, is like a skin that falls short of edge as a rug, that covers a no longer natural spot, no longer existent to live on from, the map of my person come to the end of, but not done. <coughs> that country crossed was what I could imagine, and that little spit of answer is the shadow, not the ocean which cast it, that I step next into to be cleansed of question, but not of seeking. It as if simplified for the seeking come to the end of this body. Making a fist. We forget that we are all dead men, conversing with dead men. A quotation from Jorge Luis Borges. For the first time on the road north of Tampico, I felt the life sliding out of me, a drum in the desert harder and harder to hear. I was seven. I lay in the car watching palm trees swirl a sickening pattern past the glass. My stomach was a melon slip, split wide inside my skin. How do you know if you are going to die, I, I begged my mother. We have been traveling for days. With strange confidence, she answered, when you can no longer make a fist. <coughs> Years later, I smile to think of that journey the borders we must cross separately, stamped with our unanswerable woes. I who did not die, who am still living, still lying in the back seat behind all my questions, clenching and opening one small hand. I think I should have given you about seven more <laughs> readings because I didn't even get a chance to read through all these wonderful questions. Either. But I will start. 
We'll see how this goes. And know that even if your question isn't answered today, I'm, I have a newsletter column due in a couple days, so if you will appear there, and, um, and they'll all inform what I pick for sermon topics and other ways of programs and activities here at the church. So they are valuable even if they're not read out today. Um, so this is a question that came in over email this week. And the person asked, what do you mean when you say you are wrapped in a love that surrounds you always and will not let you go? And it's poetic language on purpose, because, so we can hear it in different ways. But what I mean when I say it is that I believe that all of us have... I want all of us to remember the love that is always with us as we go out into the world. So that can be the love of this community, it can be the love of our other communities, by chance or by choice. And for me, it is the love of God as well. And I know that's not how everybody understands the world here. But for me, God is a presence that is alongside us, brokenhearted alongside us, or joyous alongside us. And so that is what I try to hold up when I say those words. But because this is a question that came in over email, the person explained, said the story behind the question as well. And this person named that, that they have had experiences where they were held down against their will. And so an idea of anything that doesn't let them go is not comforting. And it was hard for me to say those words this morning because I don't want to be invoking that sort of experience. So I'm going to be searching for some new words there because I don't think any of us can hear it as a comforting thing anymore. And so I'm really grateful to this person for naming that because we don't, that is the the beauty and the challenge of poetic language is that it can be heard in a lot of different ways. And, And I don't want anybody to be hearing that in this way that evokes feeling powerless. So if you, I don't know what the new words are going to be, so if you do, let me know, and we'll be experimenting with this. But, um, yeah, I'm really grateful to that question. Uh, there were a lot of questions about um, our current political reality and how, how do we live with people who disagree with us, often in hateful ways, and how do we have relationships with family members or friends or coworkers with really different political opinions than, than we have. And um, my best advice here, if you want to engage political conversations with these people in your life and not is a valid choice, uh, is to try to get as curious as you can. So there is a story behind their belief system. And if you can get to a place where you can ask with honesty and actual curiosity, you know, how did you come to think that way? Or, uh, it can really build some compassion and some understanding. And it's hard to do because I think most of us, when we engage in political debate, listen, ask questions so then we can refute answers. And so how do we... So you have to do that work to be able to get to that curious place. <coughs> And it's hard, but I think it's really important. We need to keep talking to each other. 
And hopefully, after you've asked your curious question, someone might ask you that same sort of curious question. Or you can say, this is my story and how I got to this place. Because I think the stories are how, how we engage with one another and also how we open up our own understandings and encourage people to, to see things from different perspectives. Here's a good one. My five-year-old grandson asked, where is heaven? How do I answer that? Uh, it's always good to answer a question with another question, especially these kinds of things. So I would ask the five-year-old, you know, why, why is he asking that question or where he thinks heaven is? Because there's some reason that that's really concerning to this kid right now. So I don't know if, if this five-year-old has experienced a death and has been told about heaven or all the kids at the schoolyard are saying if you don't believe certain ways, you don't get to go to heaven. But there's, there's something behind the question. And I think teasing that out is more important than, asking, than saying the physical location of where heaven is. But um, if we want to rely on our universalist heritage, we would say heaven is what we can create right here. And so let's do that. So many of us bring the question with us here to church of whether or not there is a God. A previous minister once claimed that this question is really a scientific question. There is or there isn't such a thing yet to be proven or not proven. Religion should be about how one lives one's values. What do you think? I think religion should be about how one lives one's values. I think part of why we are here and why church matters is we are working together to try to close that gap between our aspirations and our reality, both in our personal lives and in the wider world, and try to get that gap smaller and smaller and get us closer to our aspirations. And then this question about God, I am going to disagree with this previous minister. That's one of the great things about our tradition is you ask five ministers, you get six opinions probably about anything. So I don't think the existence of God is a religious or a scientific question. I think it, it calls on our other ways of knowing. So we have so many ways of knowing things. We can observe things. We have the scientific method. We sometimes just trust the experts. Uh, and for me, at least, in my sort of orientation as a, as a mystic, I know about God the way I know about love. And so there's not really a scientific test, as far as I know, that can tell you if you love someone or not. You just know that in your bones, and it is true. And I, for me, knowing about God is that kind of knowing, and science just isn't the right tool for God. That's what I would say. Okay. I want to learn more about immigration, how people can come to the U.S. and what the different statuses and cards mean. Can People's Church address this and help me? Maybe a study session. So there is a movement here in Kalamazoo around 
churches becoming physical sanctuaries for people who are at risk of being deported in order to keep families together. So there's a lot of families here and everywhere where children are citizens or one partner has status and one doesn't. And I went to a training yesterday and we're going to explore if this is something that People's Church can do. I'm not sure if it's our right path forward yet, but part of that discernment process is going to be some chances for education about how how we got here, why our immigration system is what it is. So stay tuned. But I think it's an interesting possibility, especially with our beautiful new addition that has showers and things that someone or someone's could physically live here. So we're going to figure this out over the next few months, I hope. And I wasn't quite ready to make this public, but I'm excited about it. So I took that question. Um, Define humanism as as it applies here at People's Church. Please and thank you. So humanism is the belief in human agency and that we as humans have have the power to make things better and have the power to improve the world. And for most most humanists are not, do not believe in God. But it's not required. There are are theist humanists and all kinds of overlapping this stuff. But our humanists here, and I'm not one of them, so maybe someone can correct me and I would appreciate that, uh, believe that it is our task to make our own meaning and to make the world better. And I think a lot of the rest of us agree with that as well. And there is not necessarily a supernatural being out there. So we need to do our best. There's a lot of questions about Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's another one. I'm just trying, I mean, it could just be 100% political climate. How do we make sense? So in this insane world we are in, how do we keep calm? And I don't think we do. I think, I think we need to keep calm enough to function in our lives because we all still need to you know, get up out of bed in the morning and fulfill all of our various obligations. But I think anger can be really good fuel. And I think this is one of those moments, or outrage or any of that. It just needs to be calibrated so we're not to the level of outrage that we can't function or the level of calm that we can't function. But I know there's the old slogan, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And I think that's true. So, so I think we need to keep calm enough. And so do spiritual practice or whatever it is that we find that helps us regulate that. You know, eat well, go for a walk, all of those things. Uh, but I don't think keeping calm is the right path forward at this point. So, who are some of your favorite Unitarian Universalist writers and ministers? Uh, 
Um, there's a writer named Kate Braestrup, who is a, a, the chaplain for, I believe, like the, some sort of law enforcement body in Maine. And her, one of her books is called Here If You Need Me. And so she's a minister, but she writes about you know, showing up in those moments of crisis when a child has gone missing or some other hard thing. And it's really powerful. I would commend that book to you. Uh, the, the person who's, whose sermons I listen to the most is Rob Hardy's, who's, who's our minister at All Souls Church in Washington, D.C. He just puts it all together really beautifully. Um, who else do I... I mean, I have a lot of friends who are ministers because we all get together periodically, so I have a lot of favorites that way, but that's a different sort of favoriteness. Um, yeah, I'll stay, stay there. Those are my two recommendations for right now. Oh, and I also really like Rebecca Parker, who was formerly the, the um, head of one of our seminaries, and she has written a lot of really interesting books about theology and... Uh, the history of Christianity and all kinds of different topics that I would, I would recommend. And I own a lot of them. So if you want to borrow, they're on my bookshelf and probably a few are on the church bookshelf as well. So are there ways to know how to bring food or company to members after surgery or other things like that here? Yes, we do have a list of people who said they're willing to do that. And uh, talk to Dana in the church office. And so when people say, oh, I need some meals or I um, want some visitors, we, we let those people know. So if that's something that you feel called to do, and it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to see the parade of casseroles and lasagnas show up for someone who needs them, uh, let Dana know in the church office. What words do you think are most helpful to children going through grief? And of course, children at different ages experience grief really differently, but I think just saying I'm here and I'll listen and, and what you're feeling is normal and hard. And people feel this, and they get through it, and you're going to get through it too, but it's going to be really hard. I think it's a good, good thing in our, our Facing Life, Facing Death class. We've actually been talking about grief and children, so I have a lot of good specific resources if whoever asked this question wants like age-appropriate, how different ages are experiencing grief kinds of resources. Do you have any tips on how to be respectful towards a family member with Christian beliefs despite thinking their beliefs are really stupid? <laughs> um, so we have a lot of Christians, or not, we have Christians in our congregation. So first I just want to say, I don't think those beliefs are stupid. I think there's a lot of beauty and meaning there. But for this person who's struggling, I think again, turning towards that curious place. So asking, you know, what, 
what does the Bible mean to you? Or what happens when you go to church and why does it matter? Or why does it give you meaning? Or how, you know, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And if you can do that from that curious place, I think it could be pretty beautiful, the answers that you get. Because if, they're, if they are devout, they're going to have a story to tell about how they got there and why it matters. And it's probably a, going to be a really nice story to hear. And I think once we know one another and our stories, it's a lot harder to dismiss one another. There's some questions that are going to require a bunch of research, so I can't ask. The other guys are very smart. So what inspired you to become a UU minister, and are you happy that you chose that path? Uh, So I was raised Unitarian Universalist. My family came to the church when I was four, and um, church was always important to me. But I didn't know, I mean, looking back, I actually knew some younger ministers, but they all seemed impossibly old to me. So it didn't seem like something that you could do as a first career, because most of the ministers I knew seemed old or had gray hair or and which is you know when you're seven or 12 or you know starting to think about what you want to be when you grow up seems impossibly old I know it's not anymore and I know I'm getting more gray hair by the minute Uh, and so so I put that on pause and thought maybe I would do that as a second career because young people weren't weren't couldn't be ministers yet and so I um went to college and studied international relations and thought I was going to be in the foreign service and got partway through that process and um, then then was rejected and they said you could apply again next year and I decided I wanted to go abroad and I worked for two years in Serbia with with the Women in Black which is a feminist anti-militarist group that just is so inspiring to me some of the bravest people I've ever met And um, while I was with them, part of the work shifted. And so we were talking about religious fundamentalism there as a, because religious fundamentalism is really bad for women and for whole other communities as well. And, And because of the particular history there, there was no liberal religion. So there was no way for these people who were committed to feminism and peace and LGBT rights to have a church. There just isn't a church there that would, that would allow them to hold those convictions and be a member. They'd have to cut off part of themselves. And, and that helped me realize that our church really matters. Our tradition where we elect our leaders and affirm the calls to the ministry of, of any person who feels that call, regardless of their identity. And And so that got me to seminary, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that, but I knew I needed some more training and more chance to think about this stuff. And and in seminary, 
I really loved my preaching class and a few other and worked at a church and just loved the rhythm of that and the the idea that all these people are coming together to improve themselves and and transform the world is so inspiring. So I'm I'm happy that I'm here. And and I sit in meetings a lot and think I am the only one who is paid to be here and the rest of these people are just showing up out of the goodness of their heart. And it is really inspiring to get to be with you all. Uh, someone has told me that the people go into ministry because God thinks they need extra supervision, <laughs> which I think is a really interesting discipline that, you're, that I you know, have, to, have to do this. And none of the rest of you have to. Like, you could have gone somewhere else and so the, this morning and done anything else this morning. And the fact that you're here is really beautiful and humbling to me. So, thank you. <coughs> what has been your greatest challenge at People's Church? I know, that's a good question, huh? And, you know, a, a year and a half in, I'm, I don't think any of the challenges have been huge, but especially the whole, the whole first year, about every couple weeks I'd hear, oh, we've always, we always do this, we always do this. And so, and I didn't know that, you know, Christmas Eve is always like this, and the different services matter, and, uh, and just sort of figuring out, you know, you all know what's normal because this is your church and so of course I should know and you don't know what is different and special and unique here at People's and so that's been really a challenge to figure out what are the we always have done it this way things that I sometimes know and change and sometimes just don't know and it's different and people say oh that was really a great change that you made and I don't know enough to know that I made a change so um it feels much better this year. The combination of having gone through a calendar year with you all and sleeping better since I'm not trying to function with a newborn, which was also one of my greatest challenges, was trying to be here when my sleep was never more than three hours straight at a time in the first few months. So, yeah. So I live 50% with my dad and 50% with my mom. And at my mom's church, they preach that if you are gay, you are a sinner and going to hell. And how do I help them understand that I don't agree with this? And how do I keep myself hopeful when they all gang up on me about it? So... Whoever this is, I hope you hold on to the truth that you know. And I'm guessing you're a child, and so sometimes the best thing is just to keep yourself safe. Like if you're going to name... I don't want you to put yourself in a position where you're jeopardizing these relationships or your physical safety or emotional safety. I think that's really important. And I think there are ways 
to hold on to your integrity and what you believe without necessarily getting into fights about it. And I think this is really hard. And I don't think there's any way I can do this justice in the next few minutes. But we know here that everyone is beloved, no matter what, including you. And, and I think just saying a respectful I disagree can be really powerful. And I don't know if you're going to change anyone's mind, and that's really a hard thing to live with. But we also know that the arc of the universe is long and it is bending towards justice. That over the past you know, generation, we have seen so much progress around LGBT issues. And I think within the next generation, a lot of those churches that preach that gay, being gay is a sin, are gonna, we're going to be looking at them like we looked at the churches that supported slavery. So I think things are changing. But it's hard to be in the middle of it. So thank you all for these beautiful and precious questions. And we'll see some more in the newsletter, and the rest will just inform everything. And I know that people are living with some real challenges right now. So I wish you all the very best and and to stay awake and engaged in this reality that we are find ourselves in the middle of, middle of. And now we're going to sing. And then we are going to, to eat. And those are good things to do together. Not at the same time.